Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch. This is a super special episode today. It is my mentor, my fellowship director, Dr. Holly Thacker with me today, as well as two of her fellows joining us. Dr. Holly Thacker is a professor of medicine at Cleveland Clinic, as well as dual professor of OBGYN and reproductive biology. She also has many other titles. She is the medical director for the Center for Specialized Women's Health, where I did my training. She is the fellowship director for the Specialized Women's Health Fellowship at Cleveland Clinic and also serves as the executive director of Speaking of Women's Health, which is one of the top 10 blogs in 2018-19, and I don't know if they've even done it this year. Mm-hmm. So she knows she has taught me everything that I know, mm-hmm. and when I started my fellowship, I came in very interested in younger uh, reproductive contrac- contraception and things like that, and I left very passionate about menopause and midlife, so I have her with me today and her two fellows, Dr. Tiffany Cochran and Dr. Tara Iyer. And we're going to have a really nice candid conversation really about why as a patient, you might be interested in looking for a doctor who has had a women's health fellowship, what the heck a women's health fellowship means, and uh, what that means sort of in the future going forward. So with all of that aside, I'd really like to introduce Dr. Thacker. And when I, I did my fellowship between 2014 and 2016, and I got to hear many of the stories of before I was ever there, but one of the stories I had always heard was how she started one of the very first, if not the first, but one of the very first Women's Health Fellowships. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Thacker, to tell us really how you became the fellowship director, the medical director of all things menopause in Cleveland. Well, thank you, Dr. Hirsch. It's such a pleasure to be on your wildly successful podcast. Mm -hmm. And I remember when you told me you were starting the podcast, Mm -hmm. because I used to get on you sometimes for spelling words in the medical record, which is pretty onerous, all that typing we have to do. And you told me, I don't have to type anything for the podcast. (laughs) So it's just so wonderful uh, to be here. And I uh, came to the Cleveland Clinic several decades ago because I was going to be a cardiologist and I didn't want to move my husband uh, for fellowship. And, you know, we're a big heart center. And during my training, I got very interested in the gender-specific differences in women's health and the manifestations of illness. And I did a rotation in menopausal medicine with a gynecologist, and they took me under their wing and took me into the OR. And I then joined the staff and decided to do my own self-design fellowship as I was a junior staff member. And it really irked me that in Harrison's textbook of medicine, there was like one little paragraph about menopause. And you just see so many women at the peak of their life and uh, they've raised their children. It's time to kind of enjoy their life. And they were like wilting flowers and it just didn't seem right. And you just see such spikes and so many chronic diseases and this total bifurcation of care where OBGYNs are great with bikini medicine and reproductive medicine and deliveries and surgeries but then you have medically trained people all totally on the male model and women aren't small men. 
And it just seemed like such a gap that I had the luxury to just be innovative, do my own training, and then word kind of cut around. People would come from other states to train with me because they had heard that I did things. And I'm like, I need a space and a place for them. And after I had my third son, my practice was so busy. People wanted training. I'm like, I needed to train partners. So I, I started the fellowship in 1997, right after I had my third son. I, I think I was just a couple days postpartum. I couldn't even sit down for the meeting I had to go into with my son. To oh, talk about no. <laughs> whether, yeah, it was really hard. Kind of sit, I think I had a UTI as well. To, um, I had changed his diaper and nurse him. You know, I got this room full of men. But I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this, right? How else am I going to do it? You got to do everything. And the discussion was, well, do you have a one-year fellowship to train people who know how to do clinical procedures and go out and practice or a two-year fellowship to really develop leaders, academic, physician, clinician leaders? So I decided to do the two-year path, even though that is a lot of time for people with a lot of debt who've already spent a lot of time in training. But I thought there's such a need for women patients to have someone who has expertise in several different fields as well as someone to be able to help teach the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I think you can make such an impact on not just longevity of life and quality of life, but also financial functioning. I mean, women who don't have their midlife symptoms treated fall off the work ladder. Mm -hmm. And that's really critical. Mm -hmm. So um, I started the fellowship because I wanted some partners. And I actually, several of the trained um, former graduates actually are on staff here at the clinic. And importantly, they've gone on around the country to prestigious places like you have uh, to Harvard and really kind of taken the ball and, and really expanded opportunities for care for women. So it's um, very exciting. And since I never had any daughters, I feel like I have a lot of daughters. <laughs> I hear there might be another family member on the way. Is that true? Well, actually the first, <laughs> yes, female Thacker, actually, um, a baby girl is coming. I'm having a pink party soon, inviting the fellows and a lot of the people here. So it's going to be so exciting. My nurses are all, they, they've just decided she will take over the center for specialized women's <laughs> health. The only problem is that means I have to work a lot longer than I plan to. That is so exciting. I'm sure, I'm sure Papa Thacker is thrilled. And well, you know, sir, it's Mimi and sir. Oh, okay. I'm a Mimi, not a grandmother. He's no. Sir. Okay. He's okay. Sir. Uh, that's very important to clarify before the birth of the child as well. So I see that you have done that. Dr. Thacker, you really taught, you hit on a word that really stuck with me when I was in training because I absorbed everything you told me, including my bad spelling, but to be innovative. And I have never forgotten that. And I think that I really took it and ran with it. And I keep trying to run as fast as I can, as fast as I can be allowed to in this culture. But um, that's really been an, in such an inspiration. And you started your career on innovation. And I'm, I'm happy to say, hopefully, I think we're continuing your legacy, even though, you know, you're still doing so many innovative projects. And to touch upon, this, especially, we, you said the economic downfalls, which is a lot of work done by Phil Sorrell and the economic downfalls when our women are underserved in menopause and midlife. So I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more specifically, what do doctors who specialize in women's health training provide to patients that they're doctors who may have done some rotations or reading on women's health cannot provide to the same level? Well, I think because you have breadth and depth of training 
in both medicine and OBGYN and hormones, as well as the unique sense of a woman, which has so many different influences, as well as understanding the differences in pharmacology and diagnostic studies, and also manifestations of common diseases in women, that when women hit midlife, and certainly if it's pretty easy and there's not many issues and they're healthy, then certainly a lot of family doctors and OBGYNs can take care of those women. But for women with serious diseases or really refractory symptoms or have cancer or blood clots or cardiovascular disease or have a lot of competing medical conditions or have worsening psychological and physical functioning because of the midlife symptoms, I think if you could expertly assess them, assess their risk for breast cancer and heart disease and sexual function and bladder function and exercise and metabolic uh, indices that you can really get that woman early on on a good track and chances are she's going to live longer and have much better functioning. And by intervening in that time, you're helping her primary care doctor or you're helping her gynecologist or maybe she's got other endocrine diseases and our endocrinologists are expert at every single hormone except the sex hormones. (laughs) Or Um, Increasingly, with our expanding genomic medicine, we're identifying more and more women at risk for various cancer syndromes, which many times, you know, affect um, the bikini and the hormonal areas both. And so to have someone who can help guide and manage uh, during those times, difficult perimenopause, sexual dysfunction, where a lot of physicians just don't feel comfortable in assessing that, and they might go to an excellent sex therapist, but someone who's not trained to actually do an examination or deal with the pelvic floor. And so there's a lot of conditions, you know, things like say urinary incontinence, not, not everybody wants mesh or surgery or an inner stim or expensive medicines with side effects. And, and so to be able to see where those gaps are and train colleagues to train nurse practitioners and physician assistants and to give lectures and to get these women on a good track so that they can function at a high level and you can continue your consultative services, I think is, is a big need, definitely underserved. That's what I was just going to ask you that next question, but I think you said that to sort of summarize that intervening at that critical point with a lens from both medicine and OBGYN or, or, or gynecology is, is crucial in preventative and if it goes beyond that, <laughs> you know, secondary prevention. But I think that you're absolutely right. Having this both dual perspective, especially in an area like the sex hormones that isn't really taught in either GYN uh, residencies, endocrine fellowships, to the degree that a specialized women's health doctor gets all that experience. And there's sort of, there's also an art to this, right? There's an art to women's health. So I think having that experience in a, in a training program and becoming a leader is really important. So what do you say to women who don't have a specialist, like a women's health specialist at a large academic setting in their area? Well, that's one reason why I've really thrown myself into the nonprofit Speaking of Women's Health that has a digital platform, free information, free treatment guidebooks, free newsletters, recipes, breaking women's health news, because I want it, women tend to go online for health information. And now most people have access, you know, to the internet. And I thought we've got to get this information out to women so that they can be empowered to ask the right questions, to know even what therapies are out there. So that's a big push. And 
a few years ago, I um, got into uh, virtual medicine and telemedicine long before our COVID epidemic happened because I would see women that had a lot of serious symptoms, get them all straightened out. They'd be on a great regimen, you know, but then they'd move away or they came from a far place to start with, or it's just not convenient to come down to a downtown academic center. And so I would transfer their care, of course, back to their um, primary physician. And then somehow they wouldn't get refills of medicines or they wouldn't get the right interventions. And by the time they filtered back into my practice, they were worse off than the first time I saw them. Uh So I'm like, okay, I have to have an easy way to be able to allow access. I need to train people. I need to do things digitally. I started shared visits where I would see 10, 15 women at a time, which the epidemic has kind of put a kibosh on that. So I've really ramped up virtual care. And I've seen women from almost every, you know, almost every state in the country, which is great because then they don't have to travel because most of what I do is intellectual. There's certainly a role for examination. You can see a great OBGYN and painful intercourse. It's just maybe assumed to be hormonal that's treated but then they missed lichen sclerosis or muscle spasms or some other condition that can be treated. So there's certainly a role for a good examination, but, but a lot of what we do really truly is intellectual. I agree wholeheartedly that this is a specialty where telemedicine does fit nicely. And there's two barriers though that I have seen. One, you know, my institution won't allow me to go across state lines and that's not against my institution. That has to do with policies that are probably protecting us actually as physicians and protecting patients. And until I think we adapt a more, uh, you know, United States policy where we can see people in different states without having to have different state licenses. I don't know if that's in the cards or not, as opposed to just getting, you know, different state licenses for where the majority of your patients come from. But that's one barrier. Well, I think that one issue is that women, when you see someone who's highly trained, who's a physician, and a lot of times women might pick out a female physician because they might feel more comfortable with a woman, that they assume that because you're a woman, that you understand female problems. And so you may or may not have experienced it, just like every pregnancy can be different, deliveries, contraceptive choices, sexual functioning issues and desires and concerns, like people are unique and have various perspectives. So just because you're a female doctor does not mean you understand women's health. And so I think we do need to do a lot of education of women that it's really truly a subspecialty And there is extra expertise and not everyone certainly needs it, or they may only need it at certain points in their life, but um, many women do. And rather than just be told there's nothing that can be done for you or just live with these symptoms, honey, or women have gone through menopause for millennia, it's normal or natural. Well, you know, death is natural and childbirth is natural, but you might die in childbirth doesn't mean we don't help you. Exactly. exactly. And pandemics might be natural. It doesn't mean you want to experience them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and as you were speaking, that reminded me of the second thing I was thinking about is that if we as specialized physicians have barriers to doing telemedicine, we might get people who are differently trained, who maybe think they know what they're doing, adapting this in a commercial way and continuing to harm women. And that is my fear. Yes. No, I think that's a big, big concern. You know, some of the advertisements I've seen, I mean, women's health is not just a a non-hormonal agent for hot flashes and a little extra, you know, Latisse 
uh, you know, to grow your eyelashes. I mean, I like long eyelashes just like anybody else, but that's kind of a little bit superficial. That being said, I mean, women do care about skin and hair. And I was, as I was telling my new trainees, uh, you know, several years ago, I was kind of irritated when people come and expect me to be an expert on hair, because as you can see, I'm not really a hair person. <laughs> That's not kind of my thing. And I wondered, why are they coming to me about hair? Like I, you know, but women that's a symbol of femininity is your hair and certainly hormones can affect hair loss. And I thought we really need more attention to this. And one of our recent graduates who's now um, at a Duke worked on a great hair loss and uh, hair thinning treatment guidebook for women, because, you know, women do want to know, you don't want to waste money on products or unproven things or things that might be dangerous. And there are things medically hormonally, cosmetically, et cetera, that can be done to, you know, improve uh, someone's health. Yeah, I know. Weight, hair, those are always things that we hear. They sometimes say that, even say, I can deal with the hot flashes, but I can't deal with losing my hair or gaining all this weight. So I wanted to uh, ask Dr. Tiffany Cochran, you did internal medicine residency, is that right? That is correct. Yep. And then your co-fellow, Dr. Tara Iyer, did family medicine residency. Is that correct? That's Wonderful. Correct. I'm interested. And I, I think I might start with Dr. Cochran to ask, because uh, being an internal medicine residency, which I also completed, and Dr. Thacker, what kind of experience did you get in women's health training during your residency? So my experience had to be kind of personal driven. Because um, I guess my program is like any kind of traditional internal medicine program. Most of the experience is kind of shifted to the OBGYN uh, department. So because of uh, my program director knew my interests, she kind of supported me kind of finding my own way of uh, how to get experience um, that's not already set up in my program. Because most of the women's health topics are kind of glossily covered just for board board exams. So. Yep, hit the high notes, right? And that's that's how it that's how my training was. And we, I came from a wonderful institution down the street. How did you find the women's health fellowship at Cleveland Clinic that you're in now? So my program director, she received an email flyer from the program manager for this fellowship program and through my interest and sent it directly to me. She knew I was looking for fellowship programs. And at that time, the ones I had found was through um, more of kind of a public health kind of route. And I was looking for something that kind of tied in research and clinical experience. Mm -hmm. And so when I read the flyer, it kind of made everything I was looking for, for a fellowship program. Wonderful. You know, we need outreach and it's when especially residents are bombarded with many choices and have so much inpatient experience, it's nice to be able to reach people before they make the decision to do hospital medicine or et cetera. So we're so glad that you applied and you're here. And Dr. Tara Iyer, tell us, you come from family medicine. Mm -hmm. So what was your experience in women's health as a family medicine resident? So in family medicine, you definitely get a little more experience than internal medicine. So I would have spe- I had a specific gynecologic rotation, and then with my elective time, because I was so interested in that, um, that's what I chose to pursue. And since we do do obstetrics care, you have a really close tie with the OBGYN department, and so it's a little bit easier to facilitate getting some of that training. 
But just even despite that, you know, you may think at the end, well, I feel comfortable taking care of everything in terms of women's health, including menopause, osteoporosis, because that's right in our wheelhouse, but that's just not the case or the reality. Um, there's a lot of even your mentors and attendings, um, both in the OB-GYN department and in family medicine, and I feel like who just don't have the specific training and grasp on that to be able to relay that information to you. Right, exactly. You kind of need the you kind of need the mentors in your academic institutions, and there's only so few of us. There's only so many places that we can be. So what do you think, and this is a question for anyone, if Dr. Thacker, you want to start, but what do you think are the biggest barriers to getting more trainees into specialized women's health fellowships? Well, I just think in general, getting a medical education is so prohibitively expensive that so many people incur so much debt through college and then graduate school, and then you're delaying a lot of loan payment during residencies, which increasingly are getting longer. And so, you know, there's only so much time in your lifespan. And for females, which, you know, certainly anyone can apply, including, you know, men um, who are interested in, in women's health. But females who may want to have a family. I mean, that's one thing that I always talk to um, my fellows about personally, even though I guess technically you're not allowed to do that, but um, you know, you need advice because you really have a limited time for childbearing. And certainly people don't have to have babies and you can be happy and have a great life and a great career, but there is a very, very specific window. You may look and feel young, but those ovaries are getting older every day. So you know, time and money are always the biggest obstacles, I think, you know, for everybody in, in any kind of any kind of field. And so I think that if you have that passion, and you want that extra expertise, that seems to be what drives women. And I think that a lot of women are very good at multitasking, you know, we have bigger corpus callosums than men. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different things you can, I've had fellows who have three children at home or have a husband that's away at another place. I've had fellows that have actually left their newborn child to travel here because they wanted, you know, and just to travel back on the weekends. I've had, you know, fellows that were so passionate about women's health, they left their fiance and their family to come for two years. You know, some were lucky like you that had your beau across the street who then, you know, proposed to you <laughs> in the big progressive field Indian stadium. And then you had one of our patients bring you as a gift a wedding dress that perfectly fit you. So, um, you know, I think yes. that it's a certain privilege that we have as women, we have a lot of special cycles in our lifespan. It's not as just you're once a child and then you're a man for a long, long time before you're an older, older man who's retired. I mean, women have definite stages in their, their life. And I think that many times can help us build a really great relationship with our patients who kind of feel more of that kinship. Wonderful. So I think what you're saying is that the women's health fellows out of all the fellows are the more are extremely motivated and smart physicians. Exactly. Exactly. And they really want to get the most, I think, out of their careers and out of their life. And, uh, you know, it's been amazing to see people study for boards and plan weddings and take mm -hmm. care of Ill, older family members and, you know, just manage and juggle all of that. 
Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Iyer, what are you hoping, even though I know that you're probably fresh into fellowship, because I think mm-hmm. it's July 15th, what are you hoping to learn about, or, or really, you know, what are you hoping to learn about in fellowship? What are your research goals? And by no means should you stick to these. I know I'm putting you on the spot in front of your fellowship director, but. Yeah. So, I mean, I think being more comfortable with kind of the breadth of women's health issues, especially as we get to midlife and feeling really comfortable doing outpatient procedures is the main reason that I wanted to do the fellowship as well as being on the forefront of research. Obviously at Cleveland Clinic, we have all of the resources basically in the world to really, um, if we really wanted to dedicate some time into doing some practice changing research, we could really do that or things you know, develop tools that may be able to help our patients or our colleagues for that matter. Um, so for all of those reasons is why I wanted to come here and what I hope to get out of it. Specifically, you know, I think you come in, just like you said, you came in interested in contraception and ended up being super passionate about um, midlife women's health issues. I definitely came in more interested in contraception and um, sexual dysfunction, and we'll see what I come out really interested. In Wonderful. Yeah. There's, there's no right or wrong answer, but I know <laughs> your eyes will be opened to all of the disservice that happens to women in midlife. And Dr. Cochran, there's so many leadership opportunities during fellowship that I uh, got to be a part of and simply just learning from Dr. Thacker is one of them, but you're really training. And I learned a lot from you. Uh, Your your presentation on human trafficking just opened my eyes and it's like, oh my goodness. And there's so many different things that things can touch on, not just things that are seem to be classically medical. Right, exactly. And you know what, that's, that's, thank you. And you're absolutely right. I learned so much when I preset my students, they're always teaching me things. And so it's such a fun, it's it's just, you're always learning. Uh, But yes, I did a really great, I should do a whole podcast on human trafficking. So I'll throw that out there to my audience. So uh, Dr. Cochran, what kind of things are you hoping to learn? And you know, how do you see leadership in women's health being a part of your future? So for me, my interest is in rural medicine. I've always been. And so what I'm planning to learn to take from this, because this is an academic center, of how I can translate that into my care for women who are in the more distant areas Mm -hmm. and how I can still be connected to the academic medicine center. So that, of course, takes a lot of leadership skills as far as learning how to make that happen, policies money because of course that's a big the biggest barrier in rural medicine so that's all of the things i hope that i can take away and be innovative myself i'm so excited to hear that i don't dr thacker would know better but i don't think there's been a recent fellow that translated this to rural medicine and i could really see you you know being educating others and so that's really cool to hear i love the diversity of what women's health field is and this leads me perfectly into my last question for for dr thacker How do you think that specialized women's health translates to other fields? So, for example, if you're a psychiatry resident or you're a med-peds resident or you're a neurosurgeon resident, you know, how do you think that having a specialized women's health or women's health in general fits into different niches besides for just bikini medicine, OBGYN, and, you know, separate from what specialty fields that we have? Well, I think that gender-specific medicine can really be applied to any area at all. 
So for instance, in neurology, we know that pain and perception of pain and treatment of pain is very different in women. Seizure thresholds, you know, are affected by hormones. So some women who have neurologic problems, brain tumors, seizures, uh, sometimes it's associated with changes in their cycle. So I really think that virtually any field of study can be sex and gender based from, from an academic uh, standpoint. One point that I'd like to make is I have seen fellows go in so many different exciting directions from really becoming experts in obesity medicine in women to uh, being very much osteoporosis gurus to um, doing direct primary care with a focus on women's health and concierge, trying to get out of the electronic medical record insurance, all these middlemen interfering with the doctor-patient relationship. I have just seen, you know, a great time for professional growth and contributions to society, not just in the standard medical um, interaction. So I think that's what's very exciting. And one thing that I, I try to help also impart to my trainees is that women's health is a contact sport. And so it crosses a lot of different boundaries and you you, know, you kind of have to be ready to be tough and to kind of understand both team sports and also individual effort and in individual sports. And I think that being able to raise money for causes such as education and research is very critical in learning how to ask for money for programs because I had to ask and write for grants and ask patients and philanthropists for money in order to build out a center and build out programs, have monies available for, for trainees in order to build an a, electronic digital you know, platform and in-person events as well to reach women. And so I don't think sometimes women are as comfortable asking for money and you know, no money, no mission. And we know women really kind of control the purse strings, right? Well, you know, interestingly, actually, in a lot of things, women make a lot of decisions in terms of health, that's for sure. But in terms of financial giving, a lot of times, even if the woman's the one making the money, a lot of times it might be a male in her family, husband, father, brother, uncle, that might actually direct direct that. Hmm. And interesting. Um, so yeah. I do, like, even if you just look at donations, women's colleges versus the couple male colleges, in terms of how active the philanthropy is. So I do think there's a big role for self-funding research, self-funding health outreach and education. And so, you know, I'm very, very grateful to my donors. I'm very grateful to the founder of Speaking of Women's Health who gifted, gifted me um, the, the intellectual property and monies in order to continue education of all, not just physicians, which is very important. You're kind of the, the head of the team, but nurses, allied health, patients themselves, and um, all the allied caregivers, like we have great women physical therapists we work with, and, um, you know, mm -hmm. financial health is important too, mm -hmm. and that affects your, your, your medical health and your social comfort level and safety levels. There's so many things that just expand upon your health and well-being, and our mission is to be strong, be healthy, and be in charge. I uh, was so excited when I got to do my first blog post on speaking of women's health. So I know your fellows will hopefully be doing some blo guest blogging as well. If you're not already signed up for the speaking of women's health newsletter, I'm going to link their website below and you want to go ahead and subscribe because I mean, these are packed 
fun emails with a lot of serious updates, but also, uh, you know, recipes and some, st and, and just a lot of information there. So we will definitely link that below. Uh, your column on wedding IQ is yes. so great. And, you know, my, my daughter-in-law who's expecting the first baby before they got, you know, when she got engaged, that was the first thing I sent her. <laughs> I, 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 so great. Thank you. You know, that was probably like the tipping point for me. I was like, I love the internet. <laughs> so thank you because these opportunities that I was afforded by you during my fellowship have, have just paved the way and I could not be more grateful for the education and the experience that I had. So I want to, I know I said last question was the last question, but since I have my mentor and my fellowship director, I want to ask you what's new in women's health for 2020 or 2021, maybe considering the whole slowdown. Well, there's just a lot of exciting things. You know, we have new contraceptive agents that we can use for perimenopause and you really spent a lot of time during your fellowship on perimenopause and the treatment guidebook. And that's become such an increasing important area. I think we're being more aggressive with cancer screenings. We have more and more cancer survivors um, a lot of genetic um, advances that really help empower people with information. I'm really excited about a drug that's in um, phase three studies, Fazolazant, which uh, resets the thermostat in the brain because not everybody can or wants to take hormones. I think that's going to be just a huge advance. I really do think that the, the, one of the benefits of the pandemic is that people are turning to, to online resources. So we need good information, just like your podcast and like my nonprofit website. And I do think that we're going to expand in telemedicine. And I think women's health specialists need to be leaders in that because it might just be easy to get in that space and say that you can take care of women's, women's problems. So I, I think the future is really, um, is really bright. And um, I'm just so proud of you. Thanks. I know you always taught me about con women, uh, women's health being a contact sport. And it is, it is, it is definitely, it's definitely true. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Good luck to you two wonderful, bright fellows. I know you're going to expand the repertoire of women's health, things that we can offer. And I'm so interested to see what you pick and choose as your sub sub niche. And I, again, I really just want to sing the praises of Dr. Thacker. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know how you're running from one thing to the other and you got your phone always on you. So I appreciate you being here with us. It's so, I'm sure my listeners will love to know where I got all of my medical education. So thank you so, so much. Uh, any final words before we jump off for today? Well, I think you should start working on baby number three because your first two <laughs> babies are so cute. And I just remember little Millie when I went to OSU. Oh, I had so much fun. My husband and I, we couldn't get enough of her. Oh my goodness. You guys, I, if you're still listening to the show, I took my, she must've been six or nine months to Dr. Thacker's presentation. And Dr. Thacker took her around into the lunch meeting at, with their speaker and was just sitting there with my daughter on her lap. And it was just such a fun experience. So he was so delicate drinking that water so nicely. And oh, I love the pictures of your children on Instagram. They're just so adorable. Well, if your granddaughter becomes uh, maybe DeMille and my daughter and your granddaughter can work together because my doctor now always says she wants to be a doctor. And so 
I maybe we've got some maybe we've got some third generation women's health doctors in the pipeline. So yeah. <laughs> um, the only other problem is she says she will only have a brother. She will not have a sister. So I don't know how that's going to work oh, out. She's the queen. She's the queen. She's very bright. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys again, and thank you everyone for listening to Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. Please leave a comment, a review, or star if this was helpful, if you found this helpful. That helps more women see this podcast, and it helps it rank in the algorithm so more women can see it. All the information for my website, my Instagram, and Twitter will be linked below, as well as that of Dr. Thacker and her fellows and Speaking Women's Health. Thanks, you guys, so much. Have a wonderful day or evening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.